I'm very pleased to have this event today and also to have my colleague Eric van der Marl joining us. Eric is an economist who specializes in the new world of trade and cross-border integration, the world that runs on flows of data and ideas. Apart from his position at, as a senior economist here at ESIP, he's also an associate professor at the ULB and a consultant to the World Bank. Eric is the author of several important studies on digital trade, digital services, and how various forms of regulation support or hinder data-based international exchange. We're going to talk about globalization and what happened to it, what is happening to it perhaps, and how new models of data regulations may be shaping the outcomes of digital globalization and digital performance. Eric, welcome. So I want us to start this discussion talking about globalization and where we stand with globalization. This is going to relate to a paper that you wrote last year that was titled Globalization Isn't in Decline, It's Changing. So what is the state of play of globalization? We're going through a pandemic that has reduced trade and economic activity, and some observers say that the new rise in protectionism during the pandemic has been so serious that we should talk about the death of globalization, or at least a reversal of globalization. Such voices could also be heard before the pandemic, and then they were pointing to stagnation in global trade in merchandises. 20 years ago, global trade in goods grew twice as fast as global GDP, but in the past years, global trade hasn't grown much at all. So in your view, Eric, is this not evidence that the era of globalization has now ended? My obvious answer would be no, because that's also precisely what I wrote about. But of course, I need to bring in some nuances here. So, and I think the distinction that you made is the obvious one, where I am coming from, because I do think there is a distinction need to be made between the globalization of goods and the globalization that we have seen over you know, the last couple of decades. And what has been sort of emerging over the last 10 years. And so if I go a little bit back to what I know from my own field of economics and the recent research that has been done by a couple of economists, they sort of classify the 80s, 90s, up until the global financial crisis as an exceptional period of globalization, what is also called hyperglobalization. And that hyperglobalization is somehow leveling off. They don't really talk about deglobalization, but it's somehow stabilizing. Now, that's one part of the story. So where I would sort of then come in is there is also another story emerging that precisely makes it that globalization is continuing, but in a different way. And so that is also consistent with that first picture, because what you do see when that good globalization was leveling off, post-global financial crisis, 2008, 2009, you saw other types of flows actually increasing. Now, that paper that I wrote a year ago focuses on uh, services, on digital services in particular, and it doesn't really matter how you define them, you can define digital services in a narrow sense or in a broad sense, but that pattern, what I just described, is then very clear. So the growth rate of these digital services sort of kick-started after the global financial crisis. So there where hyperglobalization, you know, in goods, merchandise, item, you know, tangible stuff was somehow restructuring, somehow stabilizing, other types of flows, what I consider new types of flows that are intangible services, but not only, but they are highly digitalized, they are increasing. And they are increasing fast. That's what I also see. So they're increasing at a pace that was similar as the hyperglobalization in goods before. So there is really something going on, I would say. So in that sense, I would say deglobalization, no. A new globalization, I would say yes. So globalization is, you know, in the broadest sense, if you take other flows into account, just continuing. All right. So let us unpack that idea uh, or what you said a little bit. So all globalization, we can we can basically characterize that as being trade in goods. You talked about sort of the periods of hyperglobalization of super fast growth in trading goods. And I assume 
you would also agree sort of that this was powered basically by two factors. Uh, the first one being the fragmentation of production helped by uh, technological changes that allowed companies to organize their production in much more sophisticated ways compared to the past. And the other fact factor was, of course, the rise of emerging markets and that they both provided sort of a, a, a supply factor to the global economy and a demand factor. So they both came in with new labor and they came in with new demand leading to rising levels of trade. So that is the one which is then, would you say, is it stagnating? What does that mean? Does it mean it's growing more slowly or does it mean that it's actually falling in absolute terms? Uh, so not necessarily falling because then you would sort of, uh, then you would classify that as deglobalization, but I, I, would, I would say stabilizing. I mean, it's still growing, but at a flatter rate, not as exceptional rate as before. So, and therefore, these economists are also saying that, you know, there is no sign for deglobalization. I mean, there are some other people who say there is globalization going on, but I would say that there is a restructuring, there is a stabilizing impact. And whether that is continuing in still growth in about a couple of years, I mean, again, we need to wait for, you know, the long-term patterns before we can say anything um, for sure. But what, what I can see is that that is... Yeah, stabilizing, stagnating uh, somehow. But then I also would like to qualify on a different thing that you just said. I mean, there is the distinction it, between goods and services, of course, or tangibles and intangibles, but not only. And this is also something I pointed out to in, in the paper that I wrote a year ago, because it is not a goods versus services story. I mean, partly it is. But as you pointed out, there is also these, I mean, supply chain factors that play a role for why this hyper-globalization uh, took place, aside from the other structural factors that you just mentioned. But with these kind of supply chain activities, you see that also some, some other intangibles or some other services are important and they were growing fast. I mean, you know, if you think of transportation services, if you think of yeah, services that are very contingent on manufacturing production. So these are services that also have been growing fast during that period, and they're very much related to goods trade. But these have not been growing so fast over the last 10 years. So there is really a sort of a qualitative distinction that it, it's, these are services, what I'm talking about, that are highly digitalized. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question, sort of moving to that other side of the ledger then, looking at the type of flows that are growing. And my question was here going to be, so you talked about services. Do you mean all types of services? Do you mean specific types of services that has been growing fast over the last decade? Yeah. So these are digital services such as telecommunication, information services, services that we trade over platforms, the things that you know we do over the internet. But there again, I would like to make another qualification because there as well, it's not so much about digital services only. It is also about flows that are digitalized of which services are one of them. For example, I mean, if you take metrics about, you know, how technology is traded, or even if you take indicators, how ideas are traded, and then you're going outside the standard box of how we define international trade flows, you can see that these types of also highly digitalized intangibles are growing very fast. One example is, for example, how the WIPO, the World International Patent um, Organization, defines knowledge diffusion across borders. You know, the IP flows basically across, uh, across that are flowing across borders. These flows have also been rising very fast. There was an old database from the OECD that measured technology ideas, the flows of technology ideas, and somehow IPs are included in there. But these, I mean, if, if you do compute these growth indicators, that's where you also can see that growth is going very fast. So in that sense, I would say it's services, it's highly digitalized services, but not only. So services is therefore also a bit of a proxy for that. When we talk about digital services, what do you mean then? What is a digital service? A digital service is a service that is traded A over the internet and is provided using digital tools, of which the internet is, of course, one of them. But uh, examples are, for example, also cloud computing, the very data intensive services, of course. I mean, the 
the services that you know, Google provides, for example, or Facebook provides, but not only. Uh, I mean, here the distinction again becomes a little bit blurred because what we also know from research is that even the more sort of traditional goods related services are also in the process of becoming highly digitalized. I mean, even professional services, right? Like a lawyer or an accountancy. I mean, a lot of it is automatized. A lot of it is actually produced with these digital tools and can therefore also be provided cross-border. And so therefore, I mean, the definition of a digital service has become a little bit sort of broader, not as broad as I just previously outlined with ideas and technology ideas and IP flows. If you stay in a standard way of how services are defined, these services are also becoming highly digitalized and therefore the definition of digital services is going beyond the traditional digital services of how we know it, computer services, telecommunication services, publishing services, software services or software publishing, right? These are the standard kind of digital services. So if I'm an architect that is delivering an architectural service to a person in another country, I'm not visiting that country, um, I do it entirely from my own country. Is I, am I performing a digital service then or is it more of a standard form of service? I mean, it, I guess it depends on the definition, how one defines how the digital service in the way of producing it or in the way of trading it. Of course, I mean, that would depend it. But I mean, there is research that would say, yes, yeah, so you can classify it as a digital services. But then, I mean, there is also a bit of a nuance there because then international organizations will call that a digital enabled services. So it's enabled by digital technologies. It's enabled by the Internet. The production is done using specific kinds of software, but it's not a digital, a classic digital service where I was just talking about. But, you know, going beyond that kind of definition, it would be classified as a digital enabled services. And some of some of those services, as I just said, like transport services or yeah, other traditional services, like even sometimes even professional services, they you would not immediately think like, oh, these are traded over the internet. But I mean, it turns out that they are increasingly traded over the internet and so can increasingly be classified as a digital enabled. And who knows, in the future, they are so digitalized that they become a digital service. All right. So fast growth of digital services, what we've seen over the past decade or so since the global financial crises. The other flow you were talking about is ideas and sort of the globalization of ideas or even trade and ideas. You mentioned IP, intellectual property, as one part of it. What, what else constitutes ideas and trade and ideas? Yeah, that is, I mean, more difficult to define. I mean, that is more diffuse and more blurred here because what is an idea and how do you, how do you see that an idea is traded? And one of the things, of course, is to look at IP flows like licensing and intellectual property rights that are paid for across, uh, across countries, either within multinational firms or outside. I mean, these things are to some extent recorded. But of course, I mean, if you think a little bit deeper, there are other forms of ideas that are also maybe not so much traded, but flowing across borders. I mean, the stuff that we do, for example, I mean, we talk about Zoom, or we talk about problems in the world or observations, I, things, I mean, that are going to be idea, or we talk about idea themselves, but we do that across borders. So these things are also, I mean, flowing across borders. Yeah, and that is a definition that goes a little bit beyond these kind of digital services but forms, in my view, a part of ideas. I mean, they can be classified or they can be measured in an intellectual property, but not necessarily. Another example is, for example, international research collaborations. I mean, these items are very hard to grasp. I mean, there is some data on, on that, who is very active in that and who, which country and which country is not so active in that. But it's very hard to grasp, like how that you could divide this in trade. So this whole notion of ideas that are flowing across border, I think that should be part of trade, because we also know that trade comes along with a lot of spillover effects, right? So therefore, I mean, we get richer by trading with other nations. But I mean, that standard way of trade is not very much applicable in, in this new type of flows, I would say, because precisely they're harder to pinpoint down what they are, and they're actually also harder to measure their effects that we traditionally did like in monetary terms. But, you know, if you talk about ideas, that, that's just a lot harder to do. No, indeed. Indeed. I mean, I, I think this must be one of those examples where, in a way, it sounds extraordinarily intuitive, just looking at the broader shifts that goes on 
in the economy right now, but on the one hand, you can have difficulties, you know, putting a number on it, on it because we're talking about intangible forms of, of, of integration here. But the way I would put it is basically, I mean, if you step into any company today that works over different countries, you will find that perhaps workplace integration across borders is a stronger factor of globalization than the actual output that is being traded across borders right now. When you look at sort of a typical factory floor, even how it connects different work teams in different countries in order to produce something. And then, of course, if we climb up the value chain and look at uh, product development teams, these are and in most uh, international firms that are highly globalized with people from many countries working in the same team in order to develop the same product. And the only exchange that takes place is usually Zoom meetings and, and emails, yeah. but it's a, an enormously strong vector of, of globalization. I was going to ask here, so if we look at some of the structural factors that are driving this trade and ideas, I mean, technology is obviously one of them. Is human capital another one? Can we say that the more we accumulate human capital, the more intense, the more production becomes human capital intense, will there then also be a stronger sort of instinct in the economy or a stronger drive in the economy to imitate human capital from other parts of the world that we copy, that we learn from others, and that we sort of, as a consequence of that, also have an ideas-based globalization that is more human capital-driven than technology-driven? I mean, that surely plays a role. And I think also someone like Richard Bowen also pointed out to that, uh, right? So you could also copy that human capital partly in another country, and therefore you can kickstart this, this, this unbundling. So that human capital has always been important for any kind of trade, but I think it's true. It becomes more important in that new kind of globalization. Whether it's overtaking the role of technology, I cannot say, because I do think that technology is the major driver for why this new globalization exists. I mean, if you go back to you know, what we know from research, what kickstarts globalization, I mean, it's, always, it's often what I call to my students like the three Ts. I mean, it's transportation costs, I mean, in a classical sense, right? Stuff that we now do over the internet, so transport is a proxy. It's technology. And it's what I then call tariffs, just to have a third T, but then the tariff stands for you know, policy, regulations. And technology, I mean, that's surely now in this new globalization, a huge part, a huge driver for that new globalization. Now, what you are saying about skills, that's, I would call, an enabling factor. And that becomes interesting because the big question, of course, is going to be who is going to be successful in this new kind of globalization? Who is going to be the ones that are going to, well, obviously import, but also export, because we do look a lot about exports, but that's justified or not, that's another question. But, you know, we want to trade as much as possible. And I think policymakers, they want to export as much as possible. And there, that question of human capital becomes important as an enabling factor, along with a couple of other factors. Because if you do some research, which I have done, is that those countries that have a very thriving technology environment, but not only, for example, also the internet, like if they have an open internet uh, or a closed internet or somehow like intermediate, you see that the ones that have an open internet are very successful in that new globalization. Institutions fall in that same kind of box of enabling factors next to human capital. The ones that have good institutions that can instill that trust, you know, that is needed in this new globalization. I mean, we haven't talked about data yet, but, you know, the global flow of data, is, I mean, comes along with trust in the policies that are implemented, in the stuff that we trade, is becoming important. So institutions, how do you institutionalize that? And then, of course, the human capital. Yeah. The human capital becomes incredibly important here because ideas are based of how we think, how we craft stuff, I mean, in the intangible economy. So the ones that are very good at that, the ones that have that very good enabling environment, those are the ones who are going to be successful, in my view, in, those, in that new globalization. So what does that mean in, in country terms? I mean, if we look at... I mean, we can define successful in international trade in along many different type of metrics. But if we look at sort of uh, 
volume terms, we have China, Europe, United States. They are the leading trading regions in the world. Is it the same also for this new type of, of globalization? These new flows are, I mean, is, is China successful in new globalization as it is in old globalization? I mean, what I have seen, I mean, there's a distinction to be made because first of all, I mean, this new globalization, if you talk about technology and also data as a flow, uh, what you do see is that they are very much coming from large markets. So they are the new, the new sectors, the new emerging digital sectors. They are coming from the US and that's, you know, that's no coincidence. I mean, that's a large market, scale is important. I mean, everybody has said so. That's the same thing for China, I think. So it's not for nothing that China has these huge companies because they have that skill. Now, whether they can push it through, whether they can really be successful in the long run, that depends precisely on these enabling factors. And there, I mean, personally, I would have my doubt. I mean, in the first instance, you would say, yes, of course they are successful because they are big, they have these big companies, but it needs to be played out in the long run, I would say. And I, I do see that China is not always so successful in services at large. So if you would take the wider definition of, of these intangible flows, these digital services, not only, you know, telecommunication, Hawaii and, and a couple of other successful companies, I mean, sure, they do trade a lot. But, you know, as soon as you expand that definition of services, you can see that China is actually not as successful as you would think they might because on the basis of its size. So there, I think it's a qualification to be made. Equally, I think it also says that it doesn't mean that smaller countries, by definition, are less successful in capitalizing on that. No, I mean, definitely not. You have very smart countries, you know, good quality of human capital, not so much, the, you know, the size of the human capital, but the quality, but also because they have the right policies in place. And if you look back, like, for example, China, China does not necessarily have that policy or policy setting in place, in my view, that makes it that in the long run, it will be successful because also i think this new kind of globalization i mean the word globalization itself um, says it it has this policy aspect of having open markets here open open borders you know the example that i just said international research collaborations i mean these are highly successful they are going into the direction of where researchers are collaborating over large networks that span multiple countries and so there, I mean, if China has a policy setting that is relatively closed, in my view, that would have consequences in the long run, despite having that scale. And if we compare Europe to America here, I mean, I think one popular view among sort of commentators and others is that Europe is a laggard in this new globalization. And as evidence for that view, they would point to the fact that we don't have a Google an Apple, a Facebook, an Amazon, and that many of these new sort of entrepreneurial creations that may also be important for intermediating the flows that we're talking about here, that they are not European. So what's your take on this view? I mean, I imagine sort of uh, from an economic perspective, it cannot be that easy just to say because some companies come from one country, that country is benefiting more than other countries are. Yeah, my view there, I mean, is the following. So you have these countries like the US that are very successful and they are here in the European market. And of course, there, there is a wish of being at least a little bit more successful in these digital markets with these digital companies, because that's where success, I mean, seems to be. And we would like to just put it simplified. Huh? I mean, we would like to emulate that. And this is this is what is important. And hence, you have all these policy packages. But the beauty of technology is that it's not only about the platforms, it's also how we use that kind of technology. I mean, Europe has very strong comparative advantages in other sectors. But these other sectors are not insensitive to technologies. It's also about how you, you know, use that kind of technology in order to make your sectors that you were already good at or are becoming good at you know, making it more productive. And so there is this, I mean, it's true that these digital companies, they come from this large market. The European Union is also a large market, but it's a bit more patchy and has more difficulties in sort of scaling up. And so hence we don't have that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that therefore we are, you know, not as trading as much or we're not as, as successful. 
that type of technology, we should sort of keep that aside, or we need to need to have very offensive approach in order to be more successful in that, in order to 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 capitalize in the digital economy. And that's not, in my view, the case because precisely, I mean, technology, the, the essence of technology is, of course, yeah, okay, developing these platforms, but also to use these kind of platforms in your existing business models. And there, I mean, in some sectors, I think the EU is very good, but in some countries and some sectors, it's laying behind. I mean, the numbers are there if you download them from Eurostat. And so there, I mean, there's a lot to be done still for the EU. And so by doing that, by using those technologies, you know, cloud from other countries or cloud from, um, from these big tech companies that are coming from the US, as an example, you can become also successful, not necessarily in the same sector, but in other sectors. We're soon going to come in to talk about regulation and specifically data regulations. Before going there, I wanted to ask one more question, which is a little bit more about the future of new globalization. I mean, based on what you've just said, I mean, I think we all can make the pretty obvious forecast, which is that these flows in new globalization, they will continue to grow and probably they're going to accelerate as well. And they may be... you know, for several decades be charged by technology, human capital, institutions, the enabling factors that you've been talking about. Without going into data-specific regulations, do you think that there are sort of other factors that can sort of help to drive, accelerate this trend or slow it down that we should sort of watch out for? Let me sort of put two ideas to you. Demography. So what will demography have as an effect on the way that we sort of intermediate or also link up with other people across borders, given that many sizable markets are going to have a reduction in the nominal labor supply? I think sort of on the basis of that, you would assume that this is going to lead to sort of more types of new flows because they are probably easier to work with or produce without having a high sort of labor intensity in the production itself. It can also go go in the other direction, but I'm thinking about looking at some broad macro trends that are going on globally and and how that and how those will shape this new globalization. So do you think demography is going to be one of those factors? Yeah, in a macro sense I would say yes. I mean I I I would I would do a little bit of more I mean hypothetical thinking here because this area is not necessarily my area of expertise, but what I do think is there where there is a huge scarcity and where the production of these services that are labor intense in short supply because of demographic uh, changes, you get an older population, you don't get that skill that uh, you would otherwise have in the past. That's where the pressure to innovate and to use technology are becoming higher. And so that's obviously, I think, what you are, what one can expect in the future. And that is interesting because if you want to pinpoint it down to specific sectors, I think, for example, if you think about education and health, I mean, some of these sectors are in short supply of skills or labor. And so the relative costs, I mean, these, you know, these factors, they change. And that puts a pressure to use more effective uh, tools in order to provide these ones. And so what we're going to do then is A, to penetrate these sectors with more technology, but B, it puts also pressure on your domestic supply. To what extent can you actually use that technology domestically? And to what extent is that technology coming from abroad? Now, we just discussed that this technology is often coming from abroad. Technology does in large part depend on open markets. So what I would suspect is that these traditional sectors where we all always thought like, "Mm, yeah, technology, difficult. You know, they suffer from that kind of what we call famous Bommel disease that, you know, it is difficult to get them traded. I would expect that precisely also because of these big macro event changes that you would see that they are becoming more and more tradable with these digital technologies. Are there other factors that you would also point to, perhaps also factors that you think are creating risks for new globalization. And and yet again, we're going to talk about data-specific regulations in a while, so we don't need to go into that issue now. But are there other forms of regulations or political developments, for instance, or other factors that you think are going to take us in sort of towards more new globalization or towards less new globalization? I mean, I... 
The regulation, I mean, are on one thing, not necessarily to data, but I do think, I mean, if, if I want to expand on this regulation um, topic, that that is an issue for the future, because as much as with services, the services economy, you will see that with this new globalization, I mean, things are becoming more sophisticated and more difficult and more complex to regulate. So I, I don't know if you want to talk about that in, in a minute, but it's not necessarily data specific what I'm saying here. I think so you, you have an era from, you know, you, you're phasing out of agriculture, goods and any services. And we came to discover that regulating and liberalizing and committing things in services is difficult. Well, my expectation is that's going to be even more difficult when you, you know, going one step further. And so the regulatory context is becoming more complex because we are touching upon what we call behind the border measures that touches upon a country's sovereignty. And the issue of data, I mean, you'll come to that in a minute, is, is another digital technologies is, is I think um, what you see in, for example, the cybersecurity. So the security threat, I mean, you know, it becomes hugely complex for for policymakers to find a solution. That's one thing. Related to this, what I just cannot stop thinking about is that this intangible globalization, new globalization, new kinds of flows, ideas, data, you know, IP, it also depends on a certain type of, because they are intangible, because they are hard to grasp, they depend on, on you know, trust and they depend on how how the other one is performing that you really don't really necessarily observe, right? So good, that's something you observe, but if a service or an idea is something that you need to feel, that you need to get experienced with, or you need to be exposed in a different way. Now that can be, I mean, sort of created with trust, but then the question becomes for policymakers, and that's why I think also see a big challenge, is how do you institutionalize that trust? How do you institutionalize, like, for example, trust in the internet on which these flows depend on? Some countries are very good at this, and some countries are not very good at this. And that depends on the institutional structure of a country. And the institutional structure of a country like China is entirely different compared to the European Union or countries, EU members. But you have, you know, 200 and whatever countries in the rest of the world that have entirely different structures from one, institutional structures from one and another. So, and that's a bit of um that's a, yeah that that's i think the core message and i'm not the only one who who thinks that way so if you look at other researchers and writers who have written a lot about the intangible economy not necessarily trade but intangible that's really the challenge of how to institutionalize the trust i mean the european union is doing its part but how do other countries do that and how do you find common ground in that in the future precisely because there are so many other issues at play that are not necessarily dealing with you know, economics, but have a more political yeah, approach or, or base. So th that's for me also a very big challenge for the future. All right, very good. Let's uh, move on to data, global data governance and data regulations. And let us talk a little bit about how these data regulations impact on trade. In a new paper, Precip, you have outlined three different models of data regulations in the world. And you're discussing in the paper what outcomes they also generate. So we have a, an EU model, a US model, and a China model. I want us to talk about these models and their outcomes. But let me first start by a point that you make in the paper, uh, which is that you say that there is a, a good amount of path dependence in how various regions organize their data policies, basically the data regulations, that regions basically choose their approach not necessarily on the specifics of a regulation, but that they tend to follow the path set out by the broad economic policies and the broad economic institutions. What, what do you mean by that, Eric? There are differences between how big blocks in this case, the EU, the US and China, regulate, in this case, data or digital market, the, the data market. But I mean, there is some consistency in how these countries regulate other markets too. And that, that's what I meant with the path dependency. And it follows a reflection of what they are good at and what they're not so good at, I would say. And that, that's what I would then call the path dependency. And so as a consequence, that reflection is then how, I mean, they do economically and how then, of course, the regulations are coming out of how they perform in the economy. 
But that sounds very abstract, but to put it a bit more sort of applied and what I think you would like to aim at is that if you look at the EU, the EU is very, has been always very good at, in trade. And so what it means is that economically it needs to reap the benefits from trade. And so it tries to you know, regulate that kind of flows or in this case data. And it does so because historically it has dealt a lot with these kind of trade issues, you know, with its internal market. And so what it then also tries to do is to do that internationally outside the EU market. Now, the US follows a little bit of a different approach. I mean, the US, of course, has what I outlined in the paper, a more open model. I mean, it comes less with the regulatory conditions that the EU applies. But the EU, or the US also has a long tradition of letting in some markets do what it's sort of good at and without too much of that regulation. And so the regulatory framework that you then see in the US regarding, in this case, data, follows that kind of economic performance. You know, it's very good at innovating, not disturbing that market too much. And so it has an open approach to, in this case, the data. I mean, there's some qualifications here that we, um, I guess, are going to talk about. But I mean, this is in large part what I would sort of say, you know, the path of dependency. The same goes for China. I mean, the Chinese approach is a bit more strict. It depends where you look at. But, you know, in the case of the cross-border element of these data, data flows, the data market, that's where you see China is very much restrictive. And it follows how China, you know, deals with it, these sorts of issues also in related sectors. And so in that sense, I mean, there is this path dependency, which, I mean, basically is saying the regulatory framework that a country implements reflects how it's been performing in, in its economy. So if we then look at the outcome of these different models, so am I right then in thinking that the EU model here, when it comes to data regulation, may be that it sometimes moves towards excessive forms of of regulation perhaps becomes very prescriptive very detail oriented sometimes but that the main effect it wants to capture is that it can internationalize the gains or the benefits that comes from data and cross-border interactions and data and that it actively seeks models of integration with other countries that goes for trying to capture that type of Adam Smith gain from new technology. Is that right? That is right. But I also think that there is I mean, a little bit more going on regarding the EU. I mean, it is right that the EU is a big trading sort of block in the world, has a big, has a large network of trading links with other countries, and so has a big market, and so finds it maybe um, a little bit more tempting to put those conditions on other countries in order to trade with them, right? So, you know, how to, how it wants to regulate that with other countries. And so there's obviously a sort of cost involved for these countries then to adhere to these regulations or standards, or in this case, the GDPR. And so, but then once it does, I mean, it gets a big market in return. And that also enhances, you know, the whole trading sort of integration with the EU, something that the EU is very good at. But then, I mean, here, there's also a bit of a, another issue that I would like to highlight. The fact that there are regulations from the EU follows maybe not so much its economic structure. I mean, partly, yes, there is trade involved. I mean, it has done a lot in terms of, you know, streamlining regulations internally in its market. So uses that sort of comparative advantage where it's good at, you know, in regulating these issues externally too. But I mean, and that is, I think, also important to highlight. There is, the EU is also very conscious of certain what we call non-economic objectives. And so it's very conscious of how and what should be regulated outside the realm of economics that also crosses economics, but, you know, is a separate issue. And I think that that's where also a little bit of the extra layer of regulation is coming from. And, you know, data privacy is one of those issues, of course. I mean, that is an issue where some countries are very much concerned of because of historical reasons. But that is then, yeah, that comes along with that additional detailed regulation, which is also a reflection of, of its own economy, of its own society in this case. And we look at these three models that you outlined, which model or which models 
seem to attract most adherents in the world? Is the European model more popular than the American model and the Chinese model? So we did a bit of a stock take, I mean, for this year's World Development Report, me and Martina Ferricani, my co-author. I mean, first of all, there are a lot more nuances that you can bring in, right, in, in the different sort of regulatory approaches. But one needs to start somewhere and has a, you know, one, one likes to have a, a more aggregate picture. Second is that a lot of countries are still contemplating of whether their existing structure is fit for the future, whether they should change that or not. Now, what you do see is that the EU's approach is very successful. I mean, there was a, some people say there was a big push in the past from the EU to have other countries adhering to the GDPR. And so, you know, that, that's a consequence. You could also say, yeah, but, you know, the European Union was already trading a lot with these countries. So, you know, it's only logical that they implied it. I mean, there's a lot of sort of interchange going on. The US model, I mean, the US in itself, I mean, it's a big country, but does not receive maybe the trade benefits so much as the European Union. And you also see that slightly less, fewer countries are adhering to that model. But then there is also, of course, the China model. And there what you see is that China expands or other countries that take over or implement a similar kind of model as the Chinese model. I mean, they tend to be a few. Some of them are a little bit bigger, such as Indonesia, a couple of in Africa. But they, on the whole, seem to have, you know, the least amount of followers, but also are oftentimes the less developed one. So that, that's the global pattern that you will see. Now, that's only in numbers of followers, right? So these are, I mean, the U.S. block. I mean, okay, so you have Canada and then, and then Mexico, and then you have Australia and, and New Zealand. They adhere to the same set of principles regarding the cross-border flow of data. But, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's also precisely the most successful one, because then, of course, it also depends on how much each of these followers are trading, actually, with each other. What you do see is that the EU approach covers also a lot of trade, not only because it covers a lot of countries, but also a couple of big players. So in that sense, I mean, the EU does capture a lot of you know, new flows, or in this case, digital services flows, and then comes the US, and then comes the Chinese one. Is that true for all types of data regulation? So do you see differences depending on whether we're talking about sort of GDPR style integrity, privacy type of regulation, or if we talk more about, you know, data processing regulation? No, there are some nuances. So I was, what I was just talking before, I mean, uh, as I mentioned, like the cross-board element. So we broke down these regulations of the three frameworks in two different components. So the rules that are applying for the cross-border element of data and the rules that are applying for how countries are treating data domestically and how these regulations are looking like. And then you need to think about regulations around data privacy, about additional administrative issues that a country needs to adhere to. And so there are some nuances, right? So what you do see is that precisely on, on that privacy part, on that sort of domestic data processing part, you see that some countries make then a switch from a open model so to, to, a more, to a model that it goes closer to the EU one. So in that sense, I mean, the EU on that domestic front, huh? so you see that countries do make choices that are closer to the EU one. So and that's, that's where you, you see that the, the US is slightly losing ground in the numbers of followers. I mean, that highlights, again, the importance also, I think, by other countries, not only to have, for example, access to an EU market, but also this non-economic objective of privacy and how we deal with data domestically is on, is, is on the minds of these policymakers in these countries. A final question for me, Eric. So correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I'm going to simplify things a little bit here, but would it be broadly correct to say that Europe has chosen a model for its data regulation that, as we have said, is going to provide it with opportunities to capture internationalization benefits. So you can establish patterns of trade and economic exchange with data intensive production across borders with Europe, but it may not perform as well when it comes to sort of the less Adam Smith oriented type of benefits. And so if you talk about more innovation, you mentioned that previously, innovation, entrepreneur, new entrepreneurship, the more sort of Joseph Schumpeter type of gains that comes from having sort of a fast pace of disruption in the economy that generates that type of economic gains. Europe hasn't seen so much about that. Would that be a sort of a fair characterization? 
Yeah, I mean, there, there are some studies out there that really sort of points out to how firms behave in the European Union and how dynamic those markets are. You know, you have good firm level studies. And what you do see is that in the US, that is a little bit more dynamic here in the EU. And so that is something that is then consistent of what you, you, you outlined. But what is then as a consequence of that more, slightly more dynamic behavior is that indeed in the US, you see a more path towards innovation because, you know, it's harder for a firm to survive in that market. There's a lot more pressure on that innovation, which seems to be somehow a little bit lagging here in the European market. And so hence, that is also a reflection of, you know, regulations that we implement, because why would you regulate something where more excessively where you're good at and so you know again that open model is then consistent with that what we see in the economy and what you sketch all right got it thank you so much eric we're going to take a few questions from the audience how can europe support developing countries by digital trade to get out of poverty and boost their education yeah, so there is, a, there is a bit of a contradiction going on, and I think that's important to outline for poorer countries, because what we do know, and I think it's also a big part of the motivations why some of the developing countries would really sit around the table and talk about policies, is because developing or poorer countries can really benefit from digital trade or digital services trade. Just because we have the internet, not only, but in large part, I mean, put it like a bit simplified, the trade costs in more economic terms are just a lot lower to trade these kind of services than in the case of goods. And so developing countries can tap into that. But then the difficulty here is, and that's really the challenge for these poor countries, is precisely the enabling environment. A lot of that digital trade or digital services trade is again having ideas, is again having that technology, and is again having, you know, again, sort of that research, what I just outlined, that's just very human capital intense. And that's going to be the major issue. I mean, I've worked a lot with developing countries, and constantly what we see is that the human capital is important. I mean, institutions for sure, but you need to have those skills. And it's easier to trade, you know, to do e-commerce for developing countries, and that's a very good thing. But I would like to warn, it's not the only thing. So, I mean, what we can do is to stimulate them a lot more helping from developing a skill set in their country. All right. Another question from the audience. The entire internet-based economy has often been presented as an opportunity for small firms, for small entrepreneurs to connect with customers in different countries. But when I listen to you, I get the feeling that we are moving towards much more of a multinational company-based trade with much more intra-firm trade than, than we've had in what you called old globalization. Is that correct? To some extent, maybe. I mean, again, going back to my answer on the first question, I don't know, but I, I would sort of think that a lot of that activity is happening within um, large firms or within, within a firm or between firms. Huh? But that is not entirely inconsistent of what we know, uh, what is driving that old globalization. If you think about supply chains, a lot of it is actually taking place within multinationals or around big multinationals. So again, these input suppliers, firm-to-firm behavior is taking place in this global value chain that are trading goods, you know, again, in that dense network of firms. And it's also the bigger firms that are driving a lot of that trade in a lot of sectors. And so in that sense, um, I don't know whether that is that portion that was already big for the old globalization is going to be bigger of what's happening within firms or across firms in that new globalization, but it was already big in the old globalization, I would say. I mean, the nice thing with uh, digital trade as such is that there is also a lot of smaller suppliers that can actually access the international market. Now, whether that compensates for trade that is taken up by that share of, of, of bigger firms? I don't think so. But there is a larger amount of smaller firms that can tap into the global market precisely because these trade costs are low. So that will be sort of a counter force of that suggestion. All right. This is probably going to be the final question. So also from the audience, you were talking about the different data models, uh, the models of data regulation and how they 
you talk about three of them, one European, one Chinese, and one American, and that the European model had been more successful than the other models in finding other countries in the world that adopt a similar type of regulation as Europe has done. Does that also mean that in trade terms, that Europe trades more in data-based services or database production more generally than America, China, or countries that have chosen to follow the Chinese or the American model? Again, it depends. Huh? I mean, there is this distinction that I made between the number of followers and then how much of it is, is traded. But then I would also go back to the first half of our conversation. It depends a little bit of how you define services. I mean, traditionally, the European Union has been a strong trader in services. Now, more and more of these services are becoming digital or what I would call digital enabled. And therefore, I mean, the European Union is just trading a lot in these kind of services. And so if you would expand that definition of services um, that are also becoming more data dependent, then ultimately, yes. But I mean, it's not only because we also know that in some of these niches, some of these subsectors, the US is just much stronger and a much more bigger exporter of these kind of services. So, you know, it depends, I would say. It depends on your definitions of these kind of services. But the more these digital services are expanding, the more internet technologies and digital technologies are penetrating uh, services, I would think that the European Union can capitalize on that. Now, whether it can sustain it and whether it can also be successful in new types of digital services that are you know, that we don't know, but in, a, in, in five years, I mean, that, that again depends on the ability to innovate, to, 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 to let these kind of new markets uh, come up. And I mean, we have seen that in the past, at least, when we look at uh, digital services such as software publishing, such as a couple of these information services, the US was very strong. All right, Eric, thank you so much for this conversation and for enlightening us on many aspects of globalization and what happens in the world of data regulations globally and of course how that impacts on patterns of globalization uh, this is an issue which is going to be with us for many decades so i'm looking forward to having plenty of opportunities to talk to you again eric for not just over the water cooler in the office but also for a wider audience that we have had here so thank you so much mm -hmm.